Hello, listeners, and welcome to a brand new episode of Riddles in the Dark, brought to you by the Mythgard Institute. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, and I am bringing you to a very, very exciting episode that we have been anticipating for weeks now. Uh, indeed, the very last episode, you may remember, as I'm sure you've been here live or you've downloaded and listened as soon as it came out, uh, we kept anticipating this episode, and, and our conversation kept bleeding into this <laughs> from the topic we were supposed to be discussing. And, of course, that means we'll be talking about the attack of Smaug. Uh, that's where the previous movie left off. It's what everybody has on their brain. Um, it's what we've all been thinking about, and it's what uh, we expect is going to happen in the very, very early part of the film. They probably will get to it, you know, even potentially an hour in. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe as soon as that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, clearly, it's going to be the focus of the film. Yeah. Um, so... Today we're going to be talking about Smaug's attack and what will what will everybody be up to? And we have a very very interesting riddle to uh, to pose that I actually expect people won't anticipate. I think you'll be surprised by this riddle. So without further ado, let's get started. Let me introduce to you the Tolkien professor Corey Olson and the smart and ever hardworking and absolutely essential, the only reason this show happens uh, the way it does, <laughs> Trish Lambert, my wonderful Which could, co-host. could be good or bad. Like, Hello, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it did some potentially like a qualification there. but, did, but uh, Yes. No, 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 absolutely. Uh, no, the, as the Tolkien would say, meaning nothing but good. Um, the only reason the show has any kind of structure or organization. <laughs> exactly. Well, we have. And even uh, she can't. She can only hold back the tide barely. Right. Yeah, it's right. true. It's true. Yeah. Sometimes it's great difficulty. Evidence by the half hour late start due to discussion of various and sundry unrelated topics. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'll tell you, boy. I mean, I. But I knew this a long time ago. I mean, if I was really like oriented around, you know, must start at a certain time or must do this, must do that, I'd be like, I'd be dead by now because it's just, <laughs> I mean, I'd be like, or you guys would have to have hair. fired me because I would have been like impossible to work with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We still have to do get. Uh, we we still do need to get that uh, that oh, that orc whip sound for you, Trish. Well, so. actually, Corey, Corey, I did actually. And you in got the last it? recording of last episode, I inserted the whip crack at awesome. the right points. Awesome. Yes. At, along with the Batman uh, thing that, that Dave provided. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Sweet. So the so the so the recorded episode is actually fun to listen to because there are whip cracks and the Batman. Very look, good. Look, Very amazing. good. Very appropriate. Um, all right. Very good. Well, we, I've had two announcements uh, uh, to start with. Uh, the first thing I wanted to announce is a, a, a new partnership. Uh, this is a, sort of this is a, a fun opportunity. Um, I have been having conversations with the uh, chairman of the uh, UK Tolkien Society, Sean Gunner. Um, and we have established an official partnership between the Tolkien Society and Mythgard. So, um, and the, the, the way it works is very simple. Anyone who is a, who is a member, um, you know, is actually a, a, a registered and paying member of the Tolkien Society, um, automatically, well, no, okay, no, not automatically. You have to actually put a code in for it, but um, gets a 15% discount on uh, auditing Mythgard classes. So if you are a member of the Tolkien Society, you, you'd, you'd be 
you're very welcome to come and you get a discount at, at Mythgard classes. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I would also recommend those of you who take Mythgard classes and are not members of the Tolkien Society might want to think about it because you can get the discount uh, that way as well. The Tolkien Society is really great. For those of you who um, are not familiar with it, um, you know, they're, they're you know, the, the, the longest standing society of their kind. Um, but they're, they're doing some really exciting things. They just completely revamped their website, for instance, which is now awesome. Um, it it was it used to be okay, but it was kind of 1993. Uh, it's now a really good website, uh, and they've got lots of uh, lots of really cool things and 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 and, and resources. So um, anyway, uh, I so I definitely recommend that you that you look into them. Um, and uh, we are looking forward to uh, partnering with the Tolkien Society in various ways. We may be working with uh, we may be. Um, uh, working with them at some of their conferences and our conferences. We might be working together on some of our events uh, in the future. We've been talking about uh, the possibility of arranging a lecture series and uh, uh, various other things. So um, there should be a, a lot of fun stuff with uh, Mythgard and the Tolkien Society working together. So um, that's one thing that has recently uh, come about uh, that I wanted to share with people is it's a lot of fun. It's something I've been... Um, I've been uh, uh, been excited about. The other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, th- we are doing another, Laura Burkholz and I are doing another episode of Riddles in the Dark Super Erogatory. So our, our, our new uh, spin-off Above and Beyond the Call of Duty Riddles in the Dark show um, a supplemental show. We're going to be doing, uh, we're going to be rec- uh, recording that one live on ne- this coming Monday. So Monday uh, at the same time, 10 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, on this coming Monday, April, um, what is that, 7th? Yes, 7th. Monday, yep. April 7th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll be recording our next Riddles in the Dark Super Erogatory. Um, and, and you guys are going to, you guys are repeating 3.02, right? <laughs> that, that, should I yeah. mention that part? Yeah, well, yeah. Okay, so there was an interesting, um, those, those, any of you who attended that show live may recall that I had a, uh, some kind of really weird hardware issue in the middle of that episode. Um, and I ended up having to do some on the fly, uh, hardware extemporizing in order to finish the episode. Um, apparently my hardware extemporizing totally threw off my recording program. Um, so the recording got messed up at that, but the, the recording up to that point, which was about more than two thirds of the episode um, was fine, so we, we we got that, and you know we're able to release that. But we are going to have to redo the last bit of it. Um, so we'll uh, um, we're 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 gonna um, uh, so we will be going over some ground that we went did, we did at the end of that episode, and then we'll move forward to other things. Also, the uh, we have a special guest this time. The special guest won't be joining us on Monday morning. Uh, she couldn't make it for uh, uh, for that. Uh, time slot. Um, so I have met with her at a different time and recorded an interview with her. This is with Professor Robin Reed, um, who is a, uh, a a Tolkien scholar who specializes in cultural studies, 20th century cultural studies. Um, so rather than 
focusing, as so many Tolkien scholars like me do on the medieval stuff in Tolkien, she focuses on Tolkien's relationship with his uh, with 20th century society, basically looking both at the cultural impact of 20th century factors on Tolkien, as well as looking at Tolkien's impact on 20th century society. Um, so uh, she's going to be teaching a class on that in Mythgard this summer, and I uh, had a discussion with her. She is... Um, currently publishing stuff on Peter Jackson's Hobbit films. She's doing uh, a really interesting article uh, on Torio, actually, um, right now. Um, so uh, we, 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 we've talked, we talked some about that. We talked, you know, I had her explain more about what she does, you know, what it means to study Tolkien from a, uh, you know, from a, from a cultural studies and audience reception standpoint, um, you know, which is the kind of work that she does. And uh, so anyway, so that should be really fun. That, that will be included in the, uh, in the, the, the published episode of Riddles in the Dark, super erogatory number two. But, um, uh, but then we will we will also include with that the recording we do on Monday. So I, I invite you all to join me on Monday if you can. Uh, so I wanted to make sure to mention that that was happening. And that's the end of our early announcements. We will have more at the end to do a teaser of our teaser announcement. Um, several of you have been asking about MythMoot. We will we will do some MythMoot announcing at the end of the episode. But I wanted to talk. Uh, I wanted to start off today because we were talking about the death of Smaug, and I wanted to start off, as we are wont to do, by uh, talking about the book and the, the, the way that the death of Smaug is treated in the book and some of the things which I think are really important factors of the way Tolkien treats this in the book, um, and then thinking about um, to what extent uh, the film is going um, to be interacting with those. Um, one of the, the main things that we get, of course, you know, one of the things to keep in mind, and it's one of the things that is that makes the adaptation, I think, of um, of this part of the Hobbit story. By and by this part, I really mean pretty much from chapter ten on, from the arrival in the Lonely Mountain, uh, in in the in, in Lake Town on. Um, one of the things that really makes it challenging is that so much of this stuff was semi spontaneous when Tolkien wrote it, just, you know, this part is just packed with things that he didn't really anticipate and that he didn't really have a plan for. Um, you know, when, when they arrived in Lake town, Tolkien had no idea, you know, Bard didn't exist as a character. He, he, he was not conceived. He, he was, he was conceived by Tolkien just as the dragon is attacking, you know, at the beginning of chapter 14, that's when Bard appears, shows up just in time to kill the dragon. And in the first episode died, um, it's, it's actually, it's one of my favorite revisions. If I, if I had to choose of all of the revisions Tolkien did of his earlier work, what is my favorite single change that he made? It may be this actually in his first manuscript, the first manuscript broke off right after the death of, dra- uh, of, of the dragon. He stopped there for a while and then came back to it later on. Um, there was a gap in time there and the end of the first manuscript, um, it says, and that was the end of the dragon, and of Esgaroth, and of Bard. Because Bard died in the, in the original version. And then when he goes back to pick it, so then, then time passes and he goes back to complete the story, and he just wrote above the line, and not of Bard. <laughs> you know, he, just, he just inserted a not and had Bard survive. Um, so with, with, the, with, hmm. with the addition of that one word, uh, you know, he reinserted the character of Bard, and that's you know, where then we get the whole thing with Bard leading the army and the Arkenstone and everything else. 
Um, but um, anyhow, so um, I, what I was saying about the challenges for adaptation, many of these things, as I said, were not envisioned by Tolkien at the time. He didn't know how the dragon was going to die. He didn't know what was going to become of Bard's character. He didn't even know he was going to happen. And then when he did happen, he killed him off and then changed his mind about that. If you're doing an adaptation of this, you can't exactly replicate that, or rather it would be weird to. The way it happens in the book, because of the, the sort of the, the, the accidents of Tolkien's composition process, um, Bard comes out of nowhere. You know, the, he, has no, he has no background, you know, no clear background, no personal background. Um, he has no setup in the story. He's not a factor in the politics of Lake Town. All of those questions that we were asking about, you know, sort of the balance of power in Lake Town and what, what exactly is sort of the, 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 the climate in Lake Town and <clears throat> the whole question of how do you deal with, you know, having an elected master of Lake Town. Um, how, how do you deal with having an elected master of a town in which it is known that the heir of the kingdom that was um, is still living, you know, is still is still residing. How do you handle that? Well, Tolkien never had to answer that question because, it, you know, again, it, that wasn't in his mind at the time. You know, so when he wrote Chapter 10, Bard didn't exist. So Bard was a non-factor in the build-up to <clears throat> the dwarves' departure for the Lonely Mountain with the help of the Master. Um when you're doing the film, though, that is a that is it seems to me a level of adherence to the book which would be simply silly uh, to say, oh, you know, yeah, let's give him no backstory, let's let's not integrate him. Um, you know, we've just been in Lake Town. Let's omit Bard from that scene because Tolkien omitted him. Well, Tolkien only omitted him because he hadn't thought of him yet when he wrote that, um, and I. You know, it's. I strongly suspect, had Tolkien completed his thoroughgoing revision of The Hobbit, which he began in 1960, which of course I've said many times I'm grateful he didn't because it's not very good, but if he had uh, completed it, I would be shocked if he had not uh, written Bard back into Chapter 10. I, I feel very confident he would have done that, given the kind of stature that he gave to Bard's character, and the kind of role that Bard in his line ends up playing in the future history of Middle-earth, you know, in The Lord of the Rings to come. So, um, so, so again, so here's Peter Jackson, here, here, here are the, the adapters with this challenge of taking a character who only comes in late in the game, in the book, but trying to deal with him from the beginning. Um, and it's, 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 it's a kind of challenge, I think, that they deal with a lot um, in adapting The Hobbit. But, um, but in, so in thinking of the death of the dragon, um, you have the sudden appearance of Bard. Um, one of the things, and one of the things that I, that I emphasized in my book, one of the things that I get, I'm most interested in is the way in which, I love the title of this chapter. It's one of my very favorite chapter titles um, in The Hobbit, uh, Fire and Water the way in which the struggle is through that title and through some of the descriptions, especially of Smaug's f actual fall into the lake. Um, but even in the, the, the line, the line I'm particularly remembering is the one where, you know, where um, Tolkien says that, uh, you know, Smaug, he couldn't fight against the lake. You know, the lake would beat him. The lake was too much for him. Um, this is why the destruction of the bridge 
uh, was such a big deal because the bridge was strong enough, the bridge back to the mainland was strong enough that it could have held Smaug, so he could have landed on it um, and therefore been uh, much more at his, at his ease to go through and pick apart Lake Town and kill the people instead of just doing flybys, which is all he's stuck with since he can't land once they take the bridges down. That's why they cut the bridges as soon as Smaug shows up. Um, but he doesn't dare now to try to land on the town lest he, you know, lest he fall into the water and be drowned and the, the water destroy him. Um, so again, it's the, the way in which the book sets this up as on the one hand, you have Smaug as this apparently um, unconquerable force. You know, I mean, how can this town possibly stand up, um, you know, to, to, to Smaug the almost invincible? Um, and we see him you know, enjoying himself as he is, uh, you know, disregarding the warriors of the town and uh, enjoying the sport of town baiting more than he's enjoyed anything for a long time. And then, um, uh, but nevertheless, at the same time as we're getting these images of Smaug being, um, being invulnerable and, and, and the town, um, you know, not able at all to stand up against him. There's also this larger context. The lake itself provides this larger context, this sort of reminder. You know, at the end of the day, actually, Smaug is Smaug is not of the kind of force of nature that he believes himself to be. You know, when you put him in a bigger context, you put him up against, you know, not the men of Lake Town, but the lake itself. You know, when you have fire versus water, that's actually not a fair fight. It's as as unfair a fight in the other direction um, as Smaug versus the, versus the town is. So I love the way in which the title... Um, of the chapter invites us to look at the whole fight in a different way. Again, if we're just following the action, it looks like the destruction of Lake Town is completely inevitable. You know, we have that sense. It's it's my favorite element of the end of the desolation of Smaug, that look on Bilbo's face when he's watching Smaug go and saying, what have we done? It's clear. I mean, it seems to me clear in Bilbo's face right there that he sees, you know, they have no hope. He's just going to he's going to rip that town completely apart. Um, Smaug is just going off to kill everybody, and there's nothing they can do about it. Um, and yet, we're given this wider context. In the end, this is a battle between fire and water, and we know who wins the fight between fire and water. Um, so his death is in this way inescapable. The other element that I think along those lines is this is another place where we see that element of prophecy, that element of destiny, come into play very strongly in the published Hobbit um, through the uh, the the figure of destiny that Bard becomes the 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 lost heir of Girion who here emerges uh, unexpectedly, certainly unexpectedly to the reader, unexpectedly to Tolkien in Lake Town. Um, you know, so we have uh, we have the the this story coming to this fairy tale fruition, um, you know, of the lost heir coming back and, 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 and slaying the dragon. Um, you know, we have the mythic element of the Black Arrow, um, you know, and Bard's, uh, you know, invocation of the Black Arrow there as he shoots it. And then, of course, you have the Thrush, the um, almost 
divine intervention element of it, this magical moment, uh, literally magical moment, when the when this magical thrush perches on his shoulder and speaks to him and he finds he can understand what the thrush is saying because he is of the blood of Geryon. Um, and the thrush itself, of course, with the role that the thrush has played as the sign of the fulfillment of, of you know, the prophecy of the secret door that's written in the uh, on the on the map, you know, the role of the thrush back in chapter eleven, at the opening of the door, um, you know, it's is you know he's like the herald of you know seems to be a, a sort of a spokesperson, a sort of a representative um, of the you know of 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 destiny of the 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 the, the magical um, sort of at least supernatural power um, that seems to be at work in the opening of the gate. Um, and then, the, you know, so then that thrush is now Bard's guide and shows up to Bard. So that, you know, that that element, um, the way in which Tolkien chooses to make, you know, the way in which he makes sure that the death of the dragon is a really significant moment, not just an exciting moment, you know, not just a, not just a dramatic high point in the book, um, but a, but a really, uh, a really mythic moment, um, you know, the, the death of the dragon is, is really important, um, uh, and not just for, you know, sort of simple plot-based reasons, but thematically, as I say, mythically important. So that then leads to my to the question: To what extent do we expect these elements to come out in the film? How what elements do would would you expect the film to emphasize? How would you expect the death of the dragon to be treated? Is it going to have this kind of a mythic impact? Um, or is it just going to be, you know, do, do, do we expect to see sort of in the end just another action sequence? How do we think we might, since this is one of the games that we enjoy playing in Riddles in the Dark, if we were doing this, how would we try to do it? You know, what 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 are the ways in which we think the kind of mythic significance of the death of the dragon um, could be conveyed. What, what what would they have to do on screen to keep it from just being another action sequence? Do you guys have any ideas about this? Hmm. hmm. We know it's going to be fe- special effects laden, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it will. Um, do, we, do we think they even? Do we think they are even concerned about this? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if this is explicitly a question they've asked themselves. Um, but I don't care if they have. Um, to some extent, I actually think it might be something... It's conceivable that they've asked themselves this question. It's conceivable that this issue is a factor in their thinking, whether they're consciously articulating it in this way or not. Um, obviously, the death of the dragon needs to be a big deal. <clears throat> um and I would think that anybody would have the sense that there needs to be more weight to it. You know, there needs to be there needs to be a a, a bigger sort of payoff. Uh, you know, at the very least, emotional payoff. Right. Um, if not, you know, but 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 more. You know, dramatic payoff. Again, they, they might not use the word mythic, but um, there's got to be more there than say, you know, the barrel ride sequence. Like, it's obviously got to be... Um, it doesn't need to be longer, necessarily. The barrel ride sequence was long enough. But um, but it, it does... It, it, it needs to feel weightier. Clearly, it needs to feel weightier. So how do you do that? 
how do you go about again you're designing the film how do you go about you know making this not just and now another special effects action sequence Sharon Sharon Hoff suggests that it may that the mythic part may come after the death in the resolution of regaining order in Lake Town you know with bards taking back the role you know his role as king and whatnot. Yes. I, I mean, I could see that because I, I do. I wonder how. I wonder, like Dave said, did they even think about it? I mean, I could just see Jackson, you know, the little boy in Jackson, going, "Oh, we'll have great special effects during the dragon's death," and not even think in terms of any kind of mythic. You know, I mean, I think the whole water fire thing would be awesome if that showed up in the in the, in the you know in the sequence. Also, the bridge. You know, I mean, we yes. know there's a bridge because we saw Legolas go. Is that going to feature? Are we going to see that bridge get, you know, get destroyed? Or the fact that Smaug could walk on it if he chose to? I don't know. I would. I would go with yes. There. Um, the one thing that's a little bit unclear to me is the scale. You know, since we saw, you know, we saw we did see Legolas galloping away over the bridge, and thinking of that shot, it wasn't really obvious. I can't remember precisely the scale if Smaug would be able to fit on it. I mean, if that's even going to be a relevant question right. based on the scale of Smaug that they've introduced into the film. Um, I, I I like to think... I mean, that's what I was thinking when we got that shot near the end of the film of Legolas galloping away over the bridge. I was like, ooh, the bridge! It's a setup! It's a setup for, for, the, for the dragon fight! They've shown the bridge, so now they can cut it down and we'll know what it looks like. Um, but I don't know... Uh, I mean, again, if it's too small for for the jumbo-sized, the, I think appropriately, jumbo-sized Smaug that we get uh, in the movie, um, it, the, you know, they might not bother with it. I could see Smaug trying to land on it and breaking it that way. Right, or even Smaug deliberately taking it out. Um, right. You know, if, right. They don't, if they don't throw it down to prevent him landing on it, I could see him um, destroying it on purpose to try to trap everybody. Um, right. But uh, um, still I, but not very I, mythic. <laughs> going back to Sharon's point, I, I do agree. Um, you know, Sharon, I think you're right that one way that they can have a really significant impact, they can make give it a significant impact, is in retrospect. That is, they can they can grant a mythic weight to the death of the dragon if it is by that act that Bard basically you know rises to kingly stature. And redeems his family line. And as redeems well. his family the, line. Yeah, the crack that the master made. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it seems like they've they've kind of started setting it up, uh, setting up some of these things with with that line and with the emphasis on the him figuring out ciphering the uh, the old writ the old mm-hmm. you know the yes. old prophecy uh, riddle or poem or prophecy yeah. So it, it seems like they're at least setting setting up some potential planting some potential seeds that point in this direction yeah yeah um yep yeah, yeah no I, I agree i mean i think that that um that's something certainly that could that could work i mean I, I definitely agree that there's there's a lot of emotional impact that it could be given i mean they could do they this is one thing i think that is easy you know we, we spend a lot of time emphasizing the parts that are harder to do in a visual uh, medium than in a written medium. You know, when we're talking about the adaptation and, oh, it's going to be really hard to do that on film, it's going to be really hard to do that on film. Well, you know, one thing that's easier to do on film is uh, shots of people 
terrified and suffering. <laughs> That's easier to do on film. Um, you know, effect, effectively to convey the terror of the people and the grieving of the people whose homes are being destroyed and whose, uh, and whose family members are being killed. And, um, you know, the panic of the people as the how, as the, as the, you know, the ten, the wooden town on the lake starts to burn around them. Um, that's something that is much harder to convey powerfully and effectively in prose than it is yeah. on screen. Um, so in that way, the destruction of Lake town could feel much more emotionally powerful in the moment. Um, then Tolkien, in, with his narrator, he does a really good job of coming back and drawing our attention to it. It's another thing that I emphasized in my book, that he um, uh, he goes really kind of out of his way to tell us things that we didn't absolutely have to know in order to move forward, about how you know a quarter of the people of Lake Town died and... Uh, um, and you know, I, I, like another quarter of them are going to die over the winter that's coming, and everything else. Um, so it's not that Tolkien doesn't go there. It's not that Tolkien doesn't give us that, but he doesn't give us much of that in the moment. Um, because, as I say, it's much harder to do. He would have to pause in the in the you know in the action sequence for a long time in order to to convey that. Um, and you can do that, I think, very efficiently on film. So. I would expect that kind of thing. That's not the same thing as mythic impact, but certainly um, by showing the uh, the the you know the trauma of the people of Lake Town in that you know in that moment, these varying different kinds of trauma that they that they will be experiencing when this happens, he can certainly make it feel like not just another barrel chase. I mean, it's 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 not it, that's certainly one easy way to make it not like just any other. Um, action sequence. Right. You know, Kate, Kate Neville makes an interesting point. Will Feely assume that Thorin is dead and that he is now king? It's a yeah. Really good question. Yeah. He could, he could end up taking uh, quite a role in the fight in Lake Town if that's the case. That's a fascinating point, Kate. I had never thought of that. Because, of course, everybody does assume Thorin is dead. Um, everybody right. assumes. Um, the Elven King assumes it. Uh, the Master assumes it. Everyone's like, "Well, that's the last they've heard of Thorin." And so, I remember everyone is shocked when they show up at the mountain and and, and Thorin's Feely's there. Feely's going to be pissed when he gets to Erebor. Right. <laughs> Damn, he's alive! <laughs> I'm not king anymore. I was briefly, I was briefly and erroneously king. Um, but yeah, uh, no, Kate, you're absolutely right. And then you know, especially then with the big deal with the the fact that the entire audience was reminded or perhaps informed that Feely was Thorin's heir. Um, you know, when they when he set off there in film two, uh, that's a really great point because yeah, everyone's gonna assume that. So then, how does that how does that enter into you know the following sequences? Does he believe that he is therefore the king and thus the representative of you know right. the interests of Erebor there in the town afterwards? That's and that's that also changes. We haven't gotten to it yet, but you know we should keep this question in mind for the siege part. Of siege yes, episodes as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I know that that's now, an angle on those that I hadn't of thought of. If, if Feely survives the Lake Town and the Smog's attack, which is a, another question. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Do any of them die is, is, is definitely another question. Um, oh, my God, Michael Lucero just gave a cue to one of the cartoons I sent you. Oh, yeah? They, have, they could have Smaug sink into the water, then hint that he will emerge again like he did from the molten gold, but then have his glowing chest seem to burn out and grow cold from the water quenching it. And have him <laughs> lapse back into the lake. <laughs> there you go. 
Michael's got the whole thing envisioned, right? Yeah, yeah. He's yes. got the he's he he's got the whole thing, uh, the whole <laughs> thing sorted out. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I can see. Some, I I wonder. I wonder. I mean, we saw him sort of uh, him Smaug uh, shaking off the gold, you know, the, from that that uh, you know with which he was coated there. Um, but I wonder to what extent. You know, or if to any extent that gold is going to come up again in this way, is it going to be a visual feature um, during the fight or during the, you know, are, 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 are we going to get glints of gold coming up from the water? Um, that would be, uh, that would be really interesting. Um, yeah. Huh. All right, here's, here's a death of smack. <laughs> This is a this is a drawing by a man by the name of Graham uh, Skinner, who's a Tolkien Society member, and I ran across this yesterday. And I don't know; it just made me kind of chuckle. <laughs> I mean, the only thing is, there should be air bubbles coming out of his mouth, you know. But he's he's sinking to the bottom of the lake here. Even just you know the idea of just sort of seeing Smaug suspended, just like the idea of him sinking <laughs> again, just sort of to show, even though he's huge, uh, he's really small compared to the lake. And look at that, itty bitty, and the itty bitty arrow. Yes, yes. Which see, it's exactly when you try to depict it, doesn't it look? I mean, you see it a, 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 a realistically sized arrow sticking out of the dragon, and I don't know about you, but my thought is like, there's no way that could be fatal. Actually, he's made that even bigger than I think an arrow would be. Yeah, That's it probably is. more the size of the arrow, the arrow they're using in the movie. Maybe, but yeah, yeah, it's um. <laughs> um yeah, yeah. Um, I'll do the other one too. Yeah, <laughs> this is many years later. <laughs> and there's a quote that goes with this, right, Corey? Oh what? yes, this is you know when because is a diver finding the black arrow. You know, is that uh, Bard's reference to uh, you know never have you failed me and always have I recovered you? It's like yeah, this is how this is <laughs> the recovery of the black arrow. The, the Black Arrow continues its streak. Though, of course, the book explicitly says this doesn't happen, right? That nobody ever dared to dive down uh, to recover right. the gems and everything from, from, from Smaug's carcass. But, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. So, um, but with... The, the other thing that I wanted, to, that I wanted to, to talk about is the thrush. Um, there's first, the question of the specific thrush. Do you guys think we're going to get the thrush at all? Like, they're, they're like, will any thrushes be be spotted during during the film? I'm I'm assuming I am operating under the assumption that we are going to be getting no thrush conversation. No thrush will perch on Bard's shoulder uh, right. in film three. That seems, seems pretty unlikely. Pretty clear. Um, the thrush that we've seen in both films so far is seems to be a perfectly natural and ordinary thrush. And also, significantly, does not seem to have overheard anything of importance. So even if this thrush did land on Bard's shoulder, it doesn't seem like it would have anything <laughs> substantive to tell him. Um, He'd probably just poop on his shoulder. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think that's... Uh, I, it seems to me... I Beyond unlikely, it seems almost impossible that they could do anything close to approximating the actual thrush scene. Um, 
but, you but know, that doesn't mean we're not going to get a thrush. We still could get. The thrush. <laughs> we still could get. We still could get a cameo. We still could get yeah. the, the the thrush Easter thrush egg. Walking through, yes, walking through, picking at insects yeah. as they fight in Lake Town. That's right. Yeah, but, exactly. Well, let's well, let's step back a moment. How on earth is oh? So I he may already know, he already knows about the loosened scale. Yeah, he? right. Yeah, yeah. Bayon so talked about right. it. In the second film. Well, and Garion Garion shoved it loose when he missed with the arrow, right? Exactly. That's the story. Yeah. And Ban speaks of that. See, this is the thing that's fascinating to me. Um, if you're going to take out the thrush, uh, he, see here, I would, I would, um, I would go back as a point of contrast. I'm going to do what Dave always loves loves it when I do. That is, go back to the Rankin Bass film. Um, <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> think about how any opportunity Dave can have to think about the Rankin Bass film is is a, is, is a good thing. Um, yeah. In the Rankin Bass film, there are two factors that I would point out. First, the thrush not only plays his role, but has an increased role. Um, for those of you who remember the cartoon Rankin Bass film, the thrush not only goes and, and tells Bard about the the missing scale. The thrush accompanies Bilbo down into the mountain oh, that's right. to s- confront Smaug in his lair. Um, so there's this wonderful sense in which, remember, uh, you know, in the book, it's, it's a big deal about how Bilbo goes on. He's alone, right? Balin goes down with him part of the way, but then Bilbo, you know, has to go and, and you know, uh, moving forward from there is the, you know, the bravest thing he's ever done in his life, and um, you know everything the else that happened later is as much. Adventure. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> that was so uncalled for. I can't even tell you. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, yes, uh, yeah. One of my least favorite moments in the in the Rankin Bass film. <laughs> but the point is, in the Rankin Bass film, he's not alone. The Thrush is with him, right? And he actually seems to get some like moral support from the Thrush down there. So the Thrush's role is increased. And his role as messenger, you know, sort of quasi-supernatural messenger, you know, like at least talk in the sense of talking bird, um, uh, messenger to bard is intact. However, however, and this is to me the the interesting thing, the Rankin-Bass film makes the choice to demystify, to de-supernaturalize the opening of the door. Um, the falling of the ray of light upon the keyhole with the last light of the setting sun of Durin's day is done through a Stonehenge kind of device, right? The, 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 the rock that's there has a hole in it, um, and it's, so it's set up to be a purely astronomical thing. Again, it's, it's like a little mini dwarven Stonehenge. Um, on that mm-hmm. particular day, the sun is at the right angle to shine through this little hole that has been bored in the rock um, so as to illuminate the keyhole. It's made into a, a totally mechanical process, um, uh, uh, um, uh, presumably designed by the dwarves. The way in which in the book it's a very mystical moment i mean it's 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 the moment when destiny happens um that moment is suppressed so you have the suppression of the supernatural element of the story in the rankin bass and yet not only the retention but the escalation of the thrush's role now in the peter jackson film we have had from the beginning not the suppression but the escalation of the supernatural element. This is one of the one of the things that surprised me early on in an unexpected journey was when they're at the uh, the unexpected party. You know, they're at Bag End, 
and Owen makes his speech about the 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 the, the omens, right? You know, he's like the mm-hmm. the all the signs are pointing to, and he talks to it, speaks of a of a of a prophecy which doesn't exist in the book, right? About like the birds are returning and that shows that like, in it, you know, that the, you know, the, the dragon will be killed. You know, so he talks about prophecies are being fulfilled. Signs have been given. Omens have been perceived uh, that point towards, you know, the destined fall of the dragon. Um, the role of fate in the story is emphasized by uh, by Elrond at Rivendell again. This is in, this is in this is in the Unexpected Journey. This is in the, in the Peter Jackson version. I was really impressed, especially there in film one, with the extent to which not only did they, were they not shying away and trying to make it much more naturalistic again, like the Rankin Bass film did, they were not following in that in those footsteps, but instead making it more supernatural. And yet, no thrush. We don't get the th- right. despite that fact. Um, so we have these two film versions moving in polar opposite directions on both of those questions: uh, the use of the thrush and the presence of supernatural of this the supernatural elements. So again, so so I think about the Peter Jackson film, and what do we see instead? Well, we do get something in place of the thrush. What we get in place of the thrush is legend, is tradition, right? Ban already delivered the message. Bard doesn't need it, right? He knows that Smaug has a loose scale. How does he know? Because it's been handed down from their fathers, right? In fact, it's like a, a, a sort of mythic stature of Bard's... of his, of his lineage, of his, um, of his role as heir of the king. Like, you know, if, if he's going to assume his kingdom, if he's going to come into his own um, and fulfill his destiny... As you know, like his line being the once and future kings, um, you know of Dale and the Lake. Um, if the, by, if the death of the dragon is what's going to bring that about, the what makes the death of the dragon possible is also part of that. To make the loosening of his scale not just a random fact discovered by Bilbo, we never find, we never know in the book, of course, why Smaug is missing a scale there. No rationale for that is ever given. He just happens not to have it, and Bilbo sees it. Um, whereas here now, the loosening of the scale and the final destruction of the dragon are made continuous. Are are you know that entire thing is kind of given over to the line of Girion. So I think it's not being completely demystified by this. Again, it's not a a, a d um, you know an a, a, a de supernaturalizing movement on the part of the Peter Jackson films, but rather um, it places that mystique entirely in the mythic position of the lost heir of the kingship. Um, so that's uh, that's you know, that's why I was very interested in, in, in Sharon mentioning that as a way in which they could build up um, you know, the epic statu- you know, status of yeah. the death of the dragon because it seems to me like they're already moving in that direction. Well now, in the, with the thrush topic I mean, the one thing that I do think of is the fact that we have had the thrush or yes. a thrush in every one of the movies. Now, it's been very thrushy. I mean, it's been a bird. It's been yes. doing things that birds do. Yes. So I've been trying to think, gee, on the one hand, I'm thinking, well, surely the thrush will show up again in bird, in bird three, in movie three. But if it's going to still act like a bird, what on earth could it be doing? You know, right. I suggested to Corey that it could be dive-bombing Smaug, um, you know, which would probably last all of 
a fraction of a second before it gets incinerated. I suppose it could turn into, you know, Gandalf's deliverance from Dol Guldur. We could switch him completely over and he could be in, in lieu of the moth. You know, <laughs> right. for, you know. So, I mean, on the one hand, I'm thinking, well, gosh, we've had it too. And, and also the Thresh did figure into those prophecies that Owen reported at the, right. at the, uh, right. you know, the United States party. So I'm thinking we're going to see him, but I just don't know in what capacity. Right. See, see, that's a really good point, is that in the extra omens and prophecies that have been inserted by, uh, you know, in the Peter Jackson films, um, the thrush already featured in that. So, in fact, even just by acting thrushy, as you say, I love that adjective, um, (laughs) or let's make it an adverb, by acting thrushily, uh, he... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he has already um uh he's already he's already been an instrument or you know been been an agent right. anyway um of the fulfillment of prophecy his very return um and especially with the 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 focus that that is um that is placed on it by having it be the final sequence in film 1 um, you know, Owen has returned to the, you know, has emphasized the significance of birds returning to the mountain and the, you know, as as portending the death of Smaug. And the last thing that we see at the end of film one is the thrush returning to the mountain and starting to beat his snails against the rock and moving at the speed of light. Exactly. Well, you know, of course, everybody does. Who doesn't? Um, <laughs> but uh and then the dragon's eye opening, which gives the opening of the dragon's eye at the end of the first film uh, such a delightfully ambivalent status, right? Because on the one hand, it's ominous, it's a threat. Um, you know, the dragon is awakening and danger is awaiting for you. But at the same time, Smaug's own death sentence has already been passed. You know, it's already been pointed to by the thrush that's knocking on the on the on the snail upstairs. Um, so the thrush has already played a role in that. He's done. He can retire. He's done enough. This thrush, you know, he's how, how many how many times does a, one single thrush have to be an instrument of the of the fulfillment of prophecy? After all, this is such a derailment. But I remember a cartoon a few years ago in one of the animation. Uh, events about a baby dragon making friends with the bird and he gets so excited that he incinerates the bird. (laughs) (laughs) That's horrible. Terrible. Talk about black humor. It was really terrible. It's like, oh, it's in a cutie, such a cute little dragon. You're like, oh. (laughs) Anyway. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, now you know we also have the robot conversation, but we'll save that for yeah, that's Aragorn a different question. Siege, but yeah. yeah, that's I'm still so I'm I'm giving up on the thrush. I I, I I I think that there is a less than one percent chance we will see a thrush perched on Bard's shoulder. I just I I, I do not in any way think that that's going to happen. Um, but I am not I mean, giving up who, on anybody Roak. who uh, who attends Riddles in the Dark supererogatory for this episode. Remind Corey that this could be a good conundrum. Will a thrush appear? Will a, thr- will a thrush appear, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I am not giving up on Roak, though. I refuse to give up on Roak. Well, I think it, who was it? Um, our, 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 one of our visitors from Australia said, I guess on April Fool's Day, I guess it was the run, one ring announced that um, uh, Luke Evans announced that he was going to be the voice of Roak in movie three. So we're not sure if it was an April Fool's joke or, or not. <laughs> Probably was. That's a pretty subtle April Fool's joke. 
At the it same is, time, actually. they also announced that the release date for the film was being pushed back to July 2015. Oh, so. that is just rude. See, that's yeah, so more I, what I would expect from an April Fool's joke, you know. Yeah, so uh, I, didn't, I didn't buy anything they said that day. Yeah, yeah, of course, that's always a, that's always a good policy. Um, uh, yeah, well... I, but again, Actually, I thought that I thought the Orlando Bloom getting a star on the Walk of Fame was an April Fool's joke. <laughs> <laughs> you mean until you saw pictures of it? Yeah, until the next day they actually were showing that it happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is embarrassing. If I were his agent, I would be ticked. That they, you know, announced that on April Fool's Day. On April Fool's. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, how humiliating to have, like, an announcement of what should be, like, a culmination of your career and and, and, uh, and everybody <laughs> thinks you're joking. And, and everybody assumes it must be a gag. I Everybody's mean, that's, going, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, yeah, but I'm going to put Orlando Bloom on there. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. Now, Michael Lucero reminds us that we also have Mr. Radagast who talks to birds, you know, which is another possibility that we could see the thrush so maybe showing. Maybe Radagast will be perched on Bard's shoulder. It's a different, you know, threat. the thrush could come tell Radagast that there's doings in Lake Town or something, you know, that the, the dragon's attacked. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. My brain is now sprained. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I don't I, I don't think we're gonna get I don't think anyone is gonna act particularly thrushily in uh, in film three. <laughs> um, thrushily is my word of the day now. By the way, I'm gonna see how many times <laughs> I can use the word the adverb thrushily. Um, uh, that would actually that probably get you a pretty good score. It wouldn't it though? That would be yeah. an awesome Scrabble word. I'm telling you, at least with the modified rules. But anyway, um, yes. so I. Uh, but but again, what, what I would want to emphasize is that I do think, um, you know, it's it's this is one of the things is actually a, a kind of interesting case study for one of my, you know, oft repeated um, uh, exhortations concerning the film. Um, it is really easy to look at something like this and say, oh, see, they screwed it up because they took out the thrush. I mean, assuming that the thrush, in fact, does not land on a shoulder, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume that that's not going to happen. Um, if that doesn't happen, it's really easy to sort of take a, a relatively simple-minded purist route and say, see, the thrush was supposed to tell him, and the thr- and he, so he took out the thrush, and that's awful, and so, you know, like, it's obviously really bad because the thrush isn't there. But but in doing that, if all you're doing is looking for things that are in the book and getting upset when they're absent, what you're not doing is thinking about and paying attention to what is there. And I actually think that that choice, the choice to place, to to shift the mythic the the mythic emphasis from that kind of a you catastrophic intervention, which it is. That's that's. I mean, I'm not criticizing how it happens in the book. It's really powerful in the book. But to shift that to uh, the 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 emphasis that they're placing on the tradition of Girion and the mm-hmm. status that they're giving into Girion's final mm-hmm. stand. We don't know in the book how Girion dies. We know that Smaug kills him, but we have no idea if his. And, you know, so now the film is investing the death of Girion with some significance. He died, but he didn't wholly die in vain. 
And remember, that's what Bayon is holding on to. That scene, which I quite liked, um, when Bayon retells the story, you know, like, no, Girion didn't miss. He accomplished something. And, you know, the, it, is, it, is, it has been a truth that has been, uh, you know, that, that has been uh, cherished by the heirs of Girion since that Girion accomplished something and that now Smaug has a weak spot thanks to Girion. And the heir of Girion can exploit that and uh, recover the honor of his house and his kingdom uh, in one blow. There's there is a very different kind of mythic power. It's a different it's a different myth, but there's still mythic power in that. And so again, you know, it's I can I can I can I can un, I can mourn the thrush. You know, I like the thrush. Um, I'm quite attached to how the story unfolds in the book, but at the same time, I can appreciate, you know, the elevation of the line of Girion. Um, and the way in which they have chosen to take the significance of the line of Girion and expand it and work it backwards more deeply into the fabric of the story from the beginning rather than have it come in at the end um, as not quite an afterthought but a last-minute thought on Tolkien's part, I think that's a really interesting idea. I think that that, that, that works really well and has the potential to be really cool. Oh, it's gonna. That's and that's building a lot of pressure because I mean I could imagine developing the scene, you know, in terms of bards. You know, there's more writing on this than just killing the dragon, and one would expect him to be mindful of that, even you know, even in the midst of trying to you know avert the immediate disaster. I mean, it's yes. a pretty big deal. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I think. Um, I think it's 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 definitely not something that has merely been removed and 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 not replaced with anything. Nor, as I say, nor do I think um, uh, that um, uh, that this is a question of them stripping it of myth, you know, stripping the story of of mythic significance or or, or or anything like that. It's just it's a shift. They're they're placing the 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 emphasis, the power of it somewhere else. Um, and I think in the context, it's a really interesting, and it certainly is in keeping with the story that they've been telling. Um, you know, now we have, and through this element of the story, increasingly we have uh, Thorin as, uh, or Bard as a queer um, foil to Thorin. You know, more emphasis has been placed from the beginning in a way which seems to me entirely appropriate on Thorin's... Um, you know, um, the whole Return of the King story with Thorin. Well, n- we're getting the return of two different kings here now. You know, now we're having Bard's story and the fact, you know, this sort of reminder, hey, you know, yeah, the dwarves have been, you know, they, they experienced this, you know, this Holocaust and Diaspora, uh, uh, you know, when Smaug attacked, and that's really serious, and that's um, that's 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 a big deal, and so it means a lot to Thorin to um, both take vengeance for that and to uh you know to undo that but you know what the same thing has happened in lake town right the same thing happened with bard and his people um and we can forget that so um yeah yeah Uh, i think uh timothy you make a great point timothy says um the the thrush in tolkien is fairy tale um the girion story is epic um i i I agree. I agree. And that seems to me entirely, you know, Timothy, as you're suggesting, entirely in keeping with the kind of shift that we're right. getting. Fairy tale is exactly, that's, that's the world the Hobbit lives in. It's a fairy tale world. It's not 
it's not an epic world in the same way that the Lord of the Rings is living much more in an epic world than in a fairy tale world. Um, and in bringing the Hobbit story into contact with that larger story, uh, he is, he, Peter Jackson, you know, is definitely um, bringing it into that more of an epic register. Um, and Timothy, I think I, I agree with you. I think it's a really good way to think about it. There are ways in which some of the more fairy tale elements would seem bizarrely out of place um, in the kind of story that Peter Jackson is telling, because he's telling a story which is more like uh, the Lord of the Rings register than the Hobbit register. Deliberately. Well, and, you know, a note from Kate, too, same thing, you know, taking away the talking animals is under the, that same thing, you know, it's it's de fairy tailing mm-hmm. or as Timothy says, epifying the tale as opposed to right. keeping the fairy tale, and I, I agree with that, I think that's true, I think that's that's probably something we can kind of use as a yardstick, mm-hmm. is that Jackson is working on this being an epic and taking away any kind of fairy tale elements. Of course, we're almost at the point of the story where they're gone anyway. Yeah, yeah, there aren't that many left. Exactly right. Yeah, because uh, certainly the battle. Once we get to the battle, to right. the 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 siege of the Lonely Mountain and the Battle of Five Armies to follow, um, the Hobbit itself. You're right. Does cease to does cease to be fairy tale ish. Um, in fact, you could almost say the Thrush is like the the end. I mean, it's like the last, the last fairy tale yeah. element uh, in the Hobbit. I mean, I'm trying to think of. Of other, I mean, of course, we revisit well, some of them. Well, I suppose, back, but... if you consider a shapeshifter still a fairy tale element. Well, no, but no, not. no, I wouldn't. Not I, I mean, the, used. not the, the way he's used in, yeah, exactly. No. Not then. Maybe when they right. met him, but not in the battle. In the battle, right. he's he's like he's like, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, uh, hey, Brent, you're here. You could correct me. What's uh, um, what's the name of the the the, the guy, the were bear guy? Um, Bjarki, Bodvar Bjarki, Michael Lucero, Bodvar Bjarki. Yes, yes. I'm trying, and I and I and I'm going to butcher it if I try to. Yeah, Bodvar Bjarki. Um, uh, I mean, it's it's straight out of straight straight out of northern epic. That's not a fairy tale element at all. Again, the guy who turns into a bear and wades into the battle and 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 starts throwing people around. Um, I mean, of course, Bjorn's story ends differently from that. Um, You can tell. On account of how he doesn't die, but um, uh, but still, it's 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 again that's a good example of an element. So that's which, still under epic. Yeah, which which sounded almost uh, almost fairy tale at the beginning, but then um, shifts midstream to a more epic register. Um, yeah, yeah, um. Yeah, and Anthony, I agree. Anthony says that even in the Desolation of Smaug, Bjorn feels more like uh, more folklore, like folklore yeah. than fairy tale. That, that, that's a really interesting way to uh, to to characterize that. Um, certainly, by adding the um, adding the much more detailed, uh, much more graphically envisioned um, tragic personal history of Bjorn, you know, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't seem very fairy tale um, in the film. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, we have other questions to talk about, and uh, uh, I am being spectacularly bad in my time management today. Um, so, 
I'm I'm really being bad too. I'm no whip cracking over. No on this whip side. crack today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Do, can 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 we get like a meta whip crack sound that we play when I'm cracking the whip on you to crack the whip more? Well, um, I, I, yeah. Oh, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, because I mean, somebody's got to drive the slave driver, right? I so, know that's uh, right, especially when the slave driver's shirking. <laughs> Exactly. This is bizarrely circular relationship here. I don't even but know. Anyway, did, think, we, what time did we start? Depends. We're only about an hour in, aren't we? Or yeah, yeah, we are in. about an hour in. But it means it's, and actually, you it's, know, it's I mean, time to move towards the the the, towards the, the riddle. riddle. But before that, we have uh, another a, a, another crucial question to ask, which is. What do we think the main characters are going to be doing? So thinking about, you know, uh, uh, leaving aside sort of the themes and characters of the book specifically, given the new situation that has unfolded in the desolation of Smaug with the presence of Feely, Keely, Beaufort, Owen, and Toriel, at least, with the possible addition of Legolas, um, if he's still within radius of Lake Town when the dragon attacks... What role do we see them playing? We talked last time about do we think they're going to rescue Bard? You know, how are they going to be involved? Um, we tried to sort of hold back on this last time, so now it's time to not hold back. What role do you see them playing? Do you see them achieving anything substantive during the fight? And if so, what? Another question. Hmm. Even a, a, a bigger question, well, not a bigger question, but a, a weightier question. Do they all survive? Yeah, that was going to be my question, too. Do we lose anybody? Do Are we there lose any anybody? red shirts among them? Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody die? I mean, presumably some, like, faceless Lake Town people die. Maybe Stephen Colbert dies. I don't know. But <laughs> um, uh, does, do any of the, because it's conceivable. I mean, like, you know, we could lose... Owen, I doubt we lose Feely or Kiwi. Yeah, I think they, we need to save their dust for the battlefield, I think. Yeah. Owen but, would be the one of any of them, because I think... As, it seems to be the most Owen, expendable. And based on what Boyan said, I guess Bofer has a bigger role. Well, but see, but I question that. I question that. Exactly. Uh, uh, Well, first of all, I question all these things. This is one thing thing that I I would, and this actually came up in my interview with uh, Robin Reed a couple days ago. She made the excellent point, which I would reiterate and emphasize. Many times, people will send me links to interviews with people like Philippa Boyens or Peter Jackson or one of the actors, and the spirit of the link that I am getting is, ah, here's the truth behind it, you know. Right. Here's what here's here's this shows what they were really thinking or what they were really planning. Possibly yes, but the cat the thing you have to keep in mind is those interviews are marketing, okay? Like right. they they are strategic, what they reveal and how they reveal it. Um, I am I am not. It's not that I am accusing them of lying, but. There may well be fiction involved. You know, they are trying to convey or particular things. Or their choice things. of words. Yes, their choice be. of words. They, 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 yes, they're, they're, trying to, they're, they're trying to accomplish something by giving the interview and by saying what they're saying. Um, you know, I, I, so I would just be very cautious about So, so for instance, there, uh, Philippa Boyan says Bofer has a significant role, you know, is going to be, is going to play a really significant role in film three. A really tragic emotional death in Lake Town could That's potentially true. be that really yeah. prominent role that he plays yeah. Um, yeah. in film three. Oh, I, no, I'm not saying that I am predicting that, but it's possible that that could happen. Um, 
So, um, uh, anyway. I, I just, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, this is one of the things that we talked about last time, I think, you know, when we had to call ourselves off from talking about smog, which is, you know, Smell completely miskilling any dwarves in Erebor. Is he going to do that again in Lake Town? Well, see, it, it, it does. It, it's 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 well established, though it's a fact that very that many people have disliked um, that the spirit of this film, of these films, all the way through, have been in. They're like the uh, the diametric opposite of Game of Thrones, right? You watch Game of Thrones and you can pretty much count on the fact that any character you like is going to be tortured to death before your eyes probably soon, right? Dave, didn't you say that if you're a good guy, you pretty much die in Game of Thrones? If you're actually good and noble, your death is pretty much assured in Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's almost almost, almost without exception. <laughs> um, but um, but if in uh, in... In the Hobbit, it's like the it's the opposite of that, right? If right. almost nobody, you know, th- there are almost no occasions on which anyone you like even gets injured, right? I mean, if 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 you are one of the main characters, you know, you can fall five hundred feet off a cliff and just brush yourself off when you land at the bottom. Um, the one exception, of course, being being Keeley's wound. But that's because it played a dramatic role in the story. You know, he needed to be healed, and so therefore he got he was permitted to get injured. Um, but it was the, as far as I can tell, the only injury sustained by any of the dwarves in their entire trip so far. Um, I, that's right. Well, yeah, and Legolas to get a bloody nose, but oh, yeah, I'm sorry, you're right. I did omit <laughs> Legolas's grievously bloodied nose. Uh, that was that was uh, that was a very serious moment. Um, <laughs> however, um, uh, the the point that I'm leading up to there, we're all believing. We've all been confident, confidently speaking of the corpse count that is going to pile up in film three. You know, we're all like, well, it's a given that Radagast, Toriel, Thorin, Keeley, and Feely are all dead by the end of the film. Do you realize what a whip, what whiplash that's going to give people, right? Going from, like, nobody even gets hurt to all of a sudden bodies strewn all over the place? I mean, so one argument, this is all leading up to an argument that says maybe Feely or Keeley do die in Lake Town. Maybe they want to. Maybe they want to spread out the mortality. Maybe they don't want to just overload us with, uh, you know, a sea of corpses in the Battle of Five Armies. Maybe we start off early. Maybe we set the tone for the Battle of Five Armies um, by losing a major character in Lake Town. I could see it. I could yeah. see it. I mean, there's a way in which, like, having so many of those characters die all at once. Or, I mean, of course, needless to say, the Battle of Five Armies is going to take a while, so it's not going to be all at once uh, in our experience of viewing the film. But, uh, um, uh, but it's it's um, it, it it could be really numbing. I mean, it, it could have a numbing emotional effect to have so many characters die in the same time and place. You know, indeed, if you so if we follow sort of the line of logic that 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 initially began um, with leaving the the some of the dwarves in Lake Town, so so that we would have some stake in what's going on there, that there would be some characters that we we you know had spent more than ten minutes of screen time with uh, in danger 
as opposed to you know some Lake Town people that we kind of just met at the end of the last film. Um, you know, like so they already made this. They already made the decision to change things to leave some dwarves there to kind of move um, stuff along. Killing one of them would 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 only further that sort of emotional investment of the um, uh, of the, the movie going audience, right? It's like the, then the dwarves have felt then they have experienced some loss as a result of the dragon attack, uh, and and that would also maybe serve to to heighten the tension between the dwarves that have been left behind in Lake Town and the uh, and the dwarves in the Lonely Mountain, so. So not only were they there during the attack and they saw how the Lake Town people suffered, but even maybe one of their own people was injured or killed by uh, Smaug. And, and that would make sort of Thorin's behavior uh, all the more infuriating to them. Yes. And, and only sort of widen the rift between the two factions of dwarves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Um I can't really believe that they would kill off Aiden Turner at the beginning of film three. But, you know, gosh, I'm tempted. <laughs> I mean, I can see this. I could see, like, Keeley's death at the beginning of film three could work really interestingly. Um, could be used as a wedge between Feely and Thorin. Could be... Um, or Feely's death could too. I mean, Feely's death. But could I like Keeley's even more. better because then you've got Toriel in the situation, which is not just like a saccharine, like "Oh, but my boyfriend is a dwarf." Like I can't. But rather, he's dead already, and she's grieving and upset because, like, she feels like she shouldn't have really loved him anyway, and that was really kind of inappropriate. But she did love him, and now he's dead anyhow. And so now, how is she going to act towards his brother? Uh, and his uncle, who are both like on different. I mean, it, it's a really emotionally complex situation for her and the rest of the film. If she's not, you know, like sneaking out for, uh, you know, to like make calf eyes at Keeley over the wall, but rather if she's grieving him already. I don't. I mean, I love it. I don't think it's going to happen, but I think it'd be very interesting. <laughs> but again, I can I, I just kind of, I kind of, I, I sort of feel like they're going to give. They're gonna they're gonna milk Aiden Turner's screen time as, oh. as much as possible. It's I mean, I think you... you know she's saved his life so many times. I mean, there's gonna be more life saving at the battle, and then you know one of them will die over the other, and they'll be found with their hands entwined on the battlefield, dead, buried together. Yeah, yeah, and we'll have you know what is it the roses that grow and entwine. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> love it, love it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Barbara Allen and Sweet William. Right? Exactly, right. I was I was thinking of. Yeah, or they could have, you know, they could have like a, you know, like a like a, a stone statue of of of, uh, of you know, like a carving of roses above his grave and live roses from hers, you know, entwining with right, them. So you got you the go. whole dwarf there elf go. thing going on. Oh man. <laughs> Man, my only question is, why didn't they hire us? Come on, seriously. I was the same thing. Seriously. They have missed out so much. Yeah, I'm telling you. It wouldn't have been a better film, but boy, would it have been interesting. (laughs) What What does Neil say? It wouldn't have been... What does Nichols say? Oh no! Oh, yeah, Nichols says right. It it uh, it uh, it could have been different, but it uh, but it couldn't have been better. Better yeah. <laughs> w- with us, it's like uh, it wouldn't have been better, but it could have been different. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think, yeah, well, anyway, I don't, it, it, it's, I, I want to agree with something that Kim was, was it Kim was saying a little while back? Yes, Kim was, uh, uh, Kim Wehrmeister was saying, uh, my question with regard to Bofer or anyone else is, can the movie afford another death, especially in the company? Um I agree, because, uh, I mean, as I was saying, I do think all of a sudden, you know, the body count is going to be overwhelming. Um, the idea that they're going to go the Rankin-Bass route, again, remember, in the Rankin-Bass film, they superfluously killed off Glowin and Owen and several others. I mean, they, they, they increased the number of dead dwarves, I think, to seven from three. Um, uh, uh, and they just reported it off stage. Like, we just came in, you know, Gandalf and Bilbo are talking afterwards, and he's like, oh, by the way, yes, most of the dwarves died. Um, <laughs> I, I, so yeah, I, 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 I agree, Kim, it's going to be hard enough to, if, if, if only the people die who died in the, in the book, it's already going to be hard to take. Um, so adding on to that, uh, superfluous extra deaths seems a little bit, um, unlikely. I agree. Um, but Okay, so even if we let's if we go into the working hypothesis that no major characters are going to be killed in Lake Town, um, as much as much fun as I think it would be for Kiwi to die, but never mind, um, that's fine. Well, we can let Kiwi live for another hour or two. Um, but um, what do you see? What do you see them doing? I mean, we had the question of do do they rescue Bard or not? Do they play a significant role in the death of the dragon? Is there some like do they get an assist in the death of the dragon, or are they just observers? Because yeah. right. that that's of course possible. You know, they could be, you know, they could be primarily involved in um, trying to help save people. You know, we could get a heroic sequence where, I mean, they could be pulling babies out of burning buildings, for all we know. You know, I mean, it's not like they'd be doing nothing. But, um, you know, what can they do against the dragon? You know, um, are they going to try to distract him? Are we going to get a let's get Smaug's attention to give Bard time to climb the tower sequence? Um, uh, That could happen. That could be really cheesy. I, I kind of hope that doesn't happen. But it could happen. Um, I, or again, could they be, in a sense, primarily observers? What do you think? What do you guys expect? I, 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 think, I think that if we see anybody assisting bards you know, directly with the killing of the dragon, it'll be his son. Yes, the whole line of Girion thing. I mean, right. yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I could see, you know, I could see there being maybe some aid in distracting the dragon. Hey, dude, over here! Right. <laughs> you know, by the others. But no, I let's think recapitulate Mary and Pippin at the end of the Fellowship of the Rings. Right. Films. Or what they did in Erebor, right? Hey, you big doofus, I'm over here. Hey, right. Yes. Exactly. Me, you know. Exactly. Um, but. Um, but I think, you know, I think we'll see. if anybody helps Bart, I think it'd be his son directly in terms of killing. What about, um, what about sort of uh, preventing, preventing the master from interfering? Hmm. Yeah, if we end up with some kind of a three-way situation, right? Not the town unified against the dragon, but um, 
them being an internal struggle. I mean, yeah, they, they could be fighting off guards who are trying to stop Bard, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, let's come back to that in a minute. Because um, we'll, be we'll be going in that direction in just a second. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention before we move on to our riddle, um, uh, which uh, Dave was already indirectly nudging us towards there. Um, uh, the other factor, I just want to re- reference what James Pace just said, which, James, I completely agree with you. James says, Bard's kids are right there, ready to be saved. Um, absolutely. One of the ways in which the investment of Bard with a backstory, which didn't happen in the book, for reasons I explained before, one of the consequences of investing Bard with a backstory is it really changes the dynamics of his saving Lake Town. He can't just do exactly... He's one of the last ones standing. He shoots the dragon and dives into the lake and the dragon crashes down on the town and destroys the town and then he emerges alone from the lake you know having lost everything else but killed the dragon and says and 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 it's a happily ever after moment of course not everybody's happy but it's a it's a it's a it's a fairy tale moment there when he emerges uh from the lake okay so i said the thrush was the last fairy tale moment maybe it's not but anyway um the point is he's got he's a he's a single he, he's a single father with three children now right where are his daughters Unless we see him pack his daughters off on a boat and he knows they're safe, um, he's hardly going to be content just to be like, well, I shot the dragon and I got out in time, so job well done. Like, he's got daughters now, right? Um, So, yes, I do think that's going to be a factor. Um, You know, and at the very least, the daughters... Again, I I suspect... I expect Bay and the Sun to be involved at the windlass to be involved with the shooting of the dragon, at least in some supporting sense. Um, but I, but the daughters, they're going to need rescuing or maybe they'll do rescuing. You know, maybe they'll get involved in some kind of, some kind of positive way. (laughs) Philip suggests that they could always whip up a golden statue, (laughs) which is a good idea. Because uh, it doesn't take long to whip those suckers up, you know. But um, yes, and they're immensely—they're immensely mesmerizing. Yeah, yeah, that's what they really need. Uh, it's a good, good you know. Uh, um, yeah, they could just uh, set light to the giant golden uh, dwarf king-shaped beacon. Um, but um, anyway, um, so I, I could easily see this. I, I think, in my mind, the balance of probability is on the dwarves and Toriel in Lake Town being involved in rescues. Um, you yes. know, that they are running around and they're, they're heroically saving people. Um, they, might, they might not even know what Bard is doing. Again, we were talking last time, will they rescue him from prison? They, it's conceivable they don't even know what's happening, you know, where, where Bard is and where he's going, but they've got Bard's daughters, you know, when last seen, they were essentially in custody of Bard's daughters while he was off in prison. Um, uh, you know, Bard's daughters are in their zone. Uh, and so getting Bard's daughters safely out, you've got to think, if the dragon were atta- to attack now, you know, uh, t- take where we saw them last, right? Take, you know, this, uh, um, this, this, this 
uh, sappy, sentimental moment between Kiwi and Toriel um, is now suddenly interrupted by the house bursting into flames. Um, you know, they, uh, they're going to try to get Bard's daughters out alive and presumably try to help, you know, everybody else also. Um, so that's where I think the balance of probability is. But, um, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's move towards our riddle. It does riddle. seem, I wonder if oh, sorry, the audience yeah, will find that, I wonder if the audience will find it, I wonder if people will, will, will want them to be involved in the battle with the dragon, but I think it makes a lot more sense if they're, and maybe narratively, if they're running around helping the Lake Town people, it will, it will, it will only increase the degree to which they sympathize with them over, um, uh, Crazy Thorn. Yes. Yes, and in and, and, and which there's going to be a, a more division on the Lake Town side. You know, um, yep. what we're going to lose, I think, is the sentiment among the people of Lake Town um, in the book blaming the dwarves, right? The way in which the master is able to turn them against the dwarves and blame everything on Thorin and company. Well, if part of Thorin's company is there helping to, you know, pull their biscuits out of the oven when the, when the town is burning, that's going to really change that dynamic. Um, uh, so I, I think that that would be that that would be really interesting, um, but but I agree, Dave. I don't think you know when we say that they're primarily going to be oriented uh, to saving people, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't ever even att- like. I can't imagine that Toriel is never going to take even one shot at the dragon with her bow. Like that's going to happen. You know, there's no way she wouldn't shoot try to shoot it. Um, nor, when the dragon comes close, do I think that, you know, Fiwi, Kiwi, uh, Owen, and Bofer are going to refrain from trying to fight it. I would expect right. them to try to fight it, but I don't expect them to, for that to be their primary focus. Um, you know, I don't think that's going to be the bulk of what they do. So I think that they will be shown to be not cowards. We won't see them scurrying away and running in fear when the dragon comes. But, um, or at least not only doing that. Um, but I, but again, I don't see them primarily as, uh, you know, focusing on, on, you know, offense against the dragon. Um, let, let's, uh, let's move towards the riddle. So our, the topic of our riddle today is on the master of Lake Town and what role the master is going to play. As you remember in the book, the master gets into his barge and slips off pretty early on. While Bard is still trying to rally the defense of the town, um, the the master scarpers and uh, receives great criticism for this after afterwards, of course. He is uh, um, accused of being purely self-interested and cowardly in the face of any real threat to the town. And it's one of the things that shifts um, the politics of the town away from what seems to be, uh, uh, you know, a sort of a financial or guild-based oligarchy um, seems to be the governmental system that they have in Lake Town, as far as we uh, see it described in the, in the book, um, to move away from that back to the traditional monarchy and to, to, have, uh, to have Bard be king. You'll remember the master objects to this change in political philosophy in Lake Town. You know, we in Lake Town have never suffered the mere, you know, the rule of mere fighting men, um, you know, he seems to be concerned that it, it would be turning the clock back to uh, to just revert to crude monarchy in Lake Town. Um, but 
But remember, they're doing this in part because they see the failure of this system. You know, that like when the, at the end of the day, when a dragon attacks, you really kind of want a king. Uh, you, you, at least you want a king if the king is going to be like Bard or like Beowulf or somebody. That, you know, you, you certainly want that kind of king. If the king is going to be like Theoden, you want that kind of king. Um, those kind of kings are handy uh, in, uh, in, 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 you know, moments of, uh, of, 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 of epic and mythical conflict. So, um, but how are we going to get this in the film? What are we going to see the master doing in Lake Town? Um, and let's, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and put the poll options up, um, so that we can, we can, we can display our, uh, our choices here. So option A, book answer, escaping Lake Town. Right. So we will see him, uh, you know, when the dragon attacks, we will see him find a boat, get himself into it and, uh, get, get the heck out of town. Um, B, cowering somewhere safe in town. So basically, we still see him acting like a coward, but we don't see him, uh, necess- you know, we don't see him necessarily uh, leaving town instantly. Um, C, uh, let's see. C, giving. Or- I- I'm losing my uh, my options are getting cut off here. You guys can see them better than I can. Um, what does it say? Giving orders? Well, obviously. Um, staying clear of danger. Staying clear of danger, right, okay. Giving orders while obviously still staying clear of danger. So this would be, C would be basically, he's sort of fronting. You know, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's not acting courageously. He's not, in fact, bravely standing to as, as one of the defenders of the town. But he's still acting the part. You know, he's still basically... Mm-hmm. Um, trying to retain his position as leader of the people, even though he's still looking out for his best interests. He's not going to act self-sacrificially, but he's also not going to just uh, just turn tail and run in what would obviously be a sort of politically disastrous move. Um, so that, that would be C. Um, D, what, what's the full version of D, Dave? Uh, it basically, he's in the middle of the action. Right, he's, he's moving active. around in the middle he's of the action. Yeah, in so, there, he's moving around. He's 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 contributing something proactively. Right. So D would be he's actually involved. You know, he's he's really. Um, so you, you can even see, if it's not fighting the dragon, he's actually he's maybe he's helping the dwarves rescue people from burning buildings. Right. Right. If we see uh, if we see the master of Lake Town pull you know pull an old lady out of a burning building, that would be D. Um, you know, he's actually not acting cowardly and shamefully. Um, sure, he doesn't get a black, he doesn't get a fancy black arrow to shoot at the dragon, but he actually is, you know, but, but, but they still have made the choice in the film to transform the master of Lake Town from a scumbag cowardly figure to someone who is actually acting proactively um, in the defense or at least in the best interest of the town. And e, That'll only happen if the thrush talks. <laughs> and E is none of the above. And none of the above could include lots of different scenarios that we thought of, but thought were unlikely enough that we would just group <laughs> them into E. Uh, for instance, um, what were some of the for instances that we're now? I'm, I'm, I'm going. Oh, we came up of, with a bunch, didn't I we? Know, we did. Yeah, I know this is terrible. Um. 
Yeah. <laughs> Mike, Mike, Michael Lucero says, when the thrush talks uh, should be like the equivalent <laughs> of Tolkien, of, 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 you know, of saying when, when pigs fly, or I would add, you know, when, when the king returns. You know, that's... That's, that's right. Uh, yeah, right. exactly. Well, I mean, it could be, you know, E could be he, he, he joins forces with Bard. You know, and the two of them together defeat the dragon. And that's like <laughs> All of a totally sudden, it becomes like a buddy cop film uh, exactly. between the Master of Lake Town and, <laughs> and Bard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the Master of Lake Town actually, amazing. actually, uh, uh, you know, pulls the trigger on the shot that kills that kills right. the dragon. Yeah, that would right. be a staggeringly unlikely E. Um, that sounds incredible. I I, I love that <laughs> idea. You know that visual image. Actually, I'm just like picturing you know the master of lake town as he was depicted in the second film standing there like girion at the windlass saying you know you know <laughs> shouting his defiance at smaug it's a really comical image that is I, I, um uh and um of course another thing that he could be doing e would also be would fit you know dave the the scenario that you were pointing to before if he is mm-hmm. doing none of these things, if he's neither looking out for his own safety primarily, uh, nor um, uh, nor running, nor nor fighting the dragon, but trying to interfere with Bard. I mean, if he, you know, right. and the only, honestly, the only way that I can see this making any sense is if we are depicting the master as having gone completely mad, which seems to me not impossible. By the way, I mean, right. I think we could get a like Denethor. You know, we we could get a Denethor esque. Uh, master of Lake Town here, um, where he ceases to act either in his own best interest or in the best interest of his town, um, and merely, you know, lapses into his own private obsessions. Um, uh, so, uh, conceivably, that could be, uh, you know, him, uh, him still trying to, you know, arrest or waylay Bard, um, even if it means like preventing him from trying to shoot the dragon. <laughs> Brian Yoder said, I didn't authorize any dragons in this town. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Now, I do want to go back to B and defend B by saying that, um, you know, cowering somewhere safe in town, I mean, he could, it would be like the master to have created like a subterranean panic room. Right. You know, against against the odds <laughs> right. of the dragon. A panic submarine. He's got it he's yes. got it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean he could have some place that he actually can get to that's, you know, only for him, um, you know, in the event of, of you know, of, of emergency. So I, I could see that you know, I could see him like in the basement or, you know, in the vaults of his of his mansion, you know, that he goes down and cowers. All right, here's my here's we we could also have him uh diving into a toilet instead of emerging from it. There would be a kind of a poetic uh, reversal there, which would have, uh, I think, uh, well, okay, well, one couldn't exactly call that a mythic power uh, of the bard going, uh, of, of not, not bard, but of the master uh, going Escaping. into the toilet. But... Uh, I think I think it could really work in some ways, but no. Here, here, here's my B scenario. Do you want, do you want to hear my B, my B scenario? Of course. Here's my attempt to convert people to B. Okay. The master, when the dragon attacks, is scared completely witless 
and so he just like goes tharn completely. He 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 can't do anything. He uh, he just is in a complete panic. He doesn't even think to find his boat, um, and he is rescued by either Toriel or one of the dwarves. So oh like they're not pulling babies out of the burning building. They're pulling the master of Lake Town out of the burning building, and this then puts him in a place where he has to where he probably will eventually stab in the back the people who saved his life uh, during, uh, during the, 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 the burning down of the town. Um, but um, but that, 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 that would be my favorite cowering in fear but not running away sequence. Actually, I think I'm going to take out the word safe in that sentence. Okay. Just cowering somewhere Just in cowering the town. Cowering somewhere yeah. in town, yeah. Because yeah. there's, there's no, there wouldn't really be anywhere that would be safe. Yeah, exactly. that would be safe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he may think it's safe, but it's not right. going to be. Right. Okay. Yeah, I could see him cowering un- under his desk like students in a tornado drill <laughs> right. or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, our, our old atomic drills. Yeah, exactly. Oh. I loved those in the <laughs> 80s, yes. Yes. In case of nuclear fallout, get under your desk. Get because your that'll desk. help. Yeah, exactly. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Always, I mean, even at the time, you know, even when I was in like fifth grade, even I was like, child, "This is really stupid." Are, yeah. Like, I, this is the dumbest <laughs> thing I've ever heard of. Um, like, you know, I, I can think of a lot of things I might want to do in the in the final seconds before the nuclear bomb hits my town. Cowering under my desk is not on the list. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, um, any. Uh, any no no takers on on heroism, uh, you know that uh, that we're, we're gonna get uh, we're Either gonna get a redeeming moment. C or D would be. Heroic, he's been a complete right? scumbag, but it was, so basically C, in my mind, here's how I translate these. Um, uh, a is is uh, irresponsible but pragmatic, right? You know he 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 keeps his wits enough to get in a boat and leave right away but does not have enough sense of responsibility to stay and try to do anything or help anybody. B is uh, that he is just, he's completely incapacitated um, by, by fear, by terror. C is he is, he still retains enough of a sense, like enough, uh, enough belief that the town is going to get through this, that he doesn't want to yield his position. You know, that he's even willing to endanger himself to the extent of staying for the sake of not abandoning, not, not for altruistic reasons, or not because he's a good person, um, but because he doesn't want to lose face, because he doesn't want to, uh, to, to vacate his authority. And so he continues to posture from his position of authority, even in the middle of a crisis. Basically, this is the idea of him saying, I could take advantage of this crisis and turn it to my personal right. political advantage. That's the kind of calculation that we would see the master doing. But he's going to make sure he saves his own skin. Right, yeah. exactly. He, yeah, so he'd still stay clear. You know, again, he wouldn't be acting in any way self-sacrificially, but he would still be acting shrewdly um, to try to turn it to his advantage. D is, um, to, in some sense, an actual change of heart on his part. You know, that where he, um, he ceases to be, you know, merely a, a, a sort of a puppet ruler, puppet it seems in you know, that Alfred guy's hands um, and, uh, and decides to, to, to actually become in some ways a sympathetic character. That would be interesting because of course 
his character is wholly unsympathetic, and I don't think that there's anybody who saw film two that has the slightest shred of investment in the master and what happens to him. Um, in some ways, I thought he was a little bit more of a cipher than I expected. I expected him to be a stronger character in the film than he turned out to be. Um, yeah. He was much more of a nobody. Um, much more of the... I mean, he didn't even have his own volition, really. It's the way he was manipulated by Alfred was the thing I didn't see coming. Um, yeah. So, here's D. D's his opportunity to, to grow a backbone. They, it, it'd be interesting to see if they expand him in the uh, uh, in the extended edition. There you go. We need another half hour of footage to, to our now six-hour-long <laughs> extended edition of The Desolation of Smaug. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, by far the, yeah, and the, really the missing part was, was um, character development for the master. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that is, that is, we, we shall add that to our list of demands for the extended edition of The Desolation of Smog. Um, uh, yeah, so again, D certainly would add something. No questions. And, you know, E, man, the world is your oyster. You know, you can do anything. H- heck, uh, you know, E would be like, uh, he runs off to report to his uh, to his orc overlords uh, that the plan has failed and all is in ruins. Uh, or he goes to report to his orc overlords that everything is working according to plan and Smaug is attacked just like he was supposed to. Could happen. <laughs> Maybe he's in league with Smaug all along. Ah, oh, bet you didn't see that coming. Okay. Yeah, I like the idea of him fleeing to uh, to Mordor. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So no, it turns out it turns out that uh, that he and Smaug are allies secretly, and uh, and uh, this is revealed to the viewers during the battle sequence. Yep. Yep. There we go. I've, I, I feel like I've pretty solved. I pr- I've pretty much solved it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. which one are you choosing, Corey? Oh, well, I'm not going to choose that. I'm just predicting. It. <laughs> I, you know, I'm just going to. I was hoping to be sufficiently confident to induce at least one person to guess E, but oh. I'm totally failing. Right. Shall we? Uh, should we do the? Should we open the poll before we give our answers? Oh, I did open the poll. Oh, you did open the poll. Yeah, oh. I opened the poll. I opened the poll so oh, they I... could see the options in front of them on their screens oh, while we, we talked okay. about it. Okay, we got it. Okay, there we go. Okay, there we go. I got an E. Thank you, sir. <laughs> okay, I don't know who who did it, but that was awesome. Uh, uh, you made my day there. Um, uh, C&D definitely don't, doesn't matter that you were able to come up with things. There's, you just can't sell C or D. I can't. I can't. Can't sell C and D at a discount, apparently. Um, okay. Oh, you got another. There Looks we like go. Got some more e. yeah, we got. Well, see, E is there's so much breadth available to E. I yeah. know that's true. You don't um, have to actually commit yourself to much with E. You know. Yeah. But you. You do have to commit yourself to it's not he's ru- he runs away or hides, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is which is abandoning those is pretty it's pretty tough. Yeah, it, does he even have enough spine for C? Yeah. 
Well, you know, one of the things about C is I could see him giving orders to Alfred. And Sharon points out, you know, is his giving his orders like, is he telling Alfred to pack his stuff up? Is that giving orders? Uh, you know, I mean, I no. think the spirit of the thing is more giving orders with to, regard to the attack. Yes, exactly. That he positions himself in a way so that he could say, you know, I led the defense of the town. Right, right. Later on. Again, he's, he's, he's fronting. He's fronting as a, he's not going to act self-sacrificially. He's not going to be a true leader. He's not Theoden riding in the forefront of the host, um, you know, charging ahead of the of of the Rohirrim into you know solo into the Battle of Pelennor Field. He's not Th- he's not going to be Theoden, um, you know. But could he? Could he at least be? Uh, as I say, trying to work it, trying to trying to maintain his position of authority. In the end, <laughs> in the end, no, I can't see him having even that much spine. He just seems like such a wuss. And as much as I like the idea of having him, you know, grow in a new direction and become more interesting, I don't think so. I'm going to go with B. I think I talked myself into B. That he's going to stay in town. But he's going to stay in town, and what's more, I will add as a free bonus prediction: he will stay in town, and he will be rescued from death by one of the other characters, by either one of the dwarves or by Toriel, or by one of Bard's daughters or somebody. <laughs> Probably not by yeah, Stephen Colbert, but but somebody. The, the dramatic, the dramatic irony that we would get out of uh, Bard's daughters rescuing the master would be. Rich, yeah, 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 and then you can have you know them later on, like uh, you know, uh, bringing in like a soot stained, bedraggled uh, master and being all like, you know, we found him, can we keep him? You know, uh, (laughs) you know, yeah, the both the comic and dramatic potential of this are, are real good, and as I said, what I what I love most, the thing that I said that most convinced me to go with B, the thing that made me, the idea that made me fall in love with B is this idea of setting up a double cross from him later on. You know, that basically, because one of the things that we're seeing, one of the one of the major dynamics that has already come into play that we've referred to so many times is the way in which the alliances and the personal allegiances um, uh in the lead up to the siege of the lonely mountain have been so much more complicated in the film. Um, and to have another one of those, which then turns out to be betrayed, you know, to have the dwarves think they have an ally in the master. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and then to have him, um, stab them in the back, uh, presumably by making some kind of, uh, some kind of horrible deal with Thranduil or something like that. Um, Because remember, we do have that reference in the book to the fact that the master was willing to agree to almost any, you know, agreement to get the help of the Elven King. I could see that detail floating to the surface in the film. Um, And the master cutting some kind of deal with Thranduil. Um, And maybe, you know, that's the thing that he does that, you know, ends up, like, stabbing people in the back. So... um, Anyhow, um, I, I've been kind of trying to decide between A and B. Um, 
uh, I, I think I'm going to go with B because I don't think the escape from Lake Town. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's going to be an escape from Lake Town. I think he will leave Lake Town. I think he will be banished from Lake Town, and I think it'll happen after the dragon's dead and Bard has taken over. Um, so I think B is what's going to happen. I think he'll stay in town and just be a complete coward. So, so, so he's going to stay in town, and he's he's not going to run away, but he'll be like bundled into a boat with a bunch of other refugees, and well, I think he'll end up being banished after it, right. fairly dramatically. Yeah, after, but of course, banishment yeah. could follow from either A or B. I mean, banishment almost follows right. from A in the book. Um, right, it does almost. Um, well, actually, but I you think know, actually during there are implications the that attack. lynching almost follows from A. That's in the true. Book. <laughs> But I mean that's and that's it. But that's even after the dragon's dead. And since yeah. we're talking now about during Smog's attack, I think he'll he'll stay in town and just be a complete blubbering mess. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Brianna asks a good question. Uh, escaping but failing to escape still counts as a. Y- yes, it does, Brianna. I would say if he if he if he you know tries to get away in a boat but is not successful, I would still count that as a. That still would what be. About, a, uh, yeah. What about escaping and then being burned alive? <laughs> Gosh, that's either A or E, huh? Tom was suggesting that. Tom Hillman was 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 imagining um, the master of Lake Town in a boat, frantically rowing away out of town, and then uh, uh, Smaug falling from the sky right on top of him uh, and his boat. You know, like the like the you know like the like the big chunks of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man coming down on people. You know, at the end you know, of Ghostbusters. Jackson's alternate Middle Earth that could happen. Uh, it's conceivable. Um, I, I, I can think of very few suggestions about film three that I am more hoping don't happen than that so far. That might be the suggestion I would least like to see actually occur. It would be funny, but that's exactly why I would hate it. Um, that there would be a a moment of comic relief in the middle of that scene um, would be horrible, I think. No, yeah. I, I Yeah, I can't see that. Bridget? So, Dave? Uh, B. You're going with B also? Yeah, this is, easy. This is an easy one where I, I'm, I, I for once agree with Corey. Uh, <laughs> I think it's going to have to be... Um, I think it's going to have to be... I, I really like the idea of him being rescued by Bard's daughters. <laughs> that, would that, just, would awesome. that would be awesome. That would be amazing. That would be awesome. Now, interestingly enough, I, I, we have 68% voted, but it's been up for 20, almost 22 minutes now, so I'm thinking we can share the results yep. from the yep. poll. Um, yep, let's do that. Uh, interestingly enough, A has been the, uh, has been the answer yep. that won. Yep. A has been the dominant answer. And, you know... I can easily see that. I mean, I... Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, me um, too. Uh, yeah, I really... It's... it's. I think this... The book answer might be more probable for this one than any other riddle we've done this season so far. Um, I can definitely see it. I can definitely see it. But, um... Yeah. Like Dave, I'm going to hold out for Bard's Daughters. I think that would be awesome. <laughs> Well, and I, I think, I think I, I, you know, I guess you did have a good point, which is he really didn't get developed that he 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 had much a very sort of his role in the the desolation of Smaug was much less than we expected. Yeah. Um, 
nonetheless, nonetheless, I still I feel like having him uh, flee the town takes him out of the takes him out of the on-screen mm-hmm. action in the story. Whereas having having him remain in town and maybe be rescued or interfering or just something like that keeps him in the story, keeps him involved, mm-hmm. keeps mm-hmm. him on screen. Uh, and it just makes more sense to me that he would continue to be involved. Uh, as opposed to as opposed to having to flash back and forth between here's Bard and the dwarves trying to save the town. Here's the master on a boat heading out of town. Here's dwarves and Bard. Then back to the master and Alfred again. If he's actually there, whether if he's hiding or something, then it's much easier to integrate him in without having to go back and forth. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Good. Well, we should uh, we should let people go as mm-hmm. we have uh, come to the end of our time past the end of our time here and next time I'm, I'm going to turn on my timer <laughs> yeah um, and we so. should and we do have a couple announcements that we wanted to end with um, the first thing we wanted to announce is we have some firm Mythmoot news uh, to announce Yay! to everybody um, we have definitely decided on we have definitely firmed up our venue and our dates so you can now make definite travel arrangements. You can circle things in your calendar way in advance. You'll notice how far ahead of the game we are this year <laughs> in getting things together. Um, uh, so first of all, I would tell you the dates are January, the weekend of January 10th and 11th, 2015. That is the official date of Mythmoot for this year. And we will be at the BWI Marriott in Baltimore. So we'll be back in Baltimore again. In fact, we'll be back at the venue where we were for Mythmoot 1, for those of you who attended there. It's the same hotel that we were in the first time. Um, so uh, so that's the place. That is the date. Um, uh, that's what's going to happen. Registration will be opening up sometime later this month, we assume, Soon, yes. Right? Uh, in and the, we will have early bird pricing. Yes, that's the other thing. We're going to be doing uh, one thing as a consequence of being uh, being prepared earlier. We are going to uh, have early bird registration, so you will be able to get a ticket at a discounted rate uh, if you sign up early. Um, and I believe we're defining early as anything before September. Isn't that what we were saying? Yeah, I think we were talking about August, end of August being yeah, the, the cutoff. Yeah, the end of August being the cutoff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, probably around the same time that the riddles. The, the riddles. Time. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. As long as we're still answering riddles, you can get the early bird uh, uh, right, uh, right. rate. That's right. I think we should do that. That's what, yeah. that's what, that's the one hook that we'll have to riddles in the dark is <laughs> <to> <laughs> exactly, <mis-root>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, um, um, so yeah, so that's going to be. I'm really excited to have things open now. We're still there are still some things, of course, that we have not yet finished determining. Um, one of the primary things is you know we're still working on a couple different options for some special guests that we're hoping will join us, and I can't give you more information on that yet because we haven't set anything in stone there. Um, but we definitely have some uh, some fun options under consideration, and we're hoping for uh, for some pretty cool things. So we'll definitely keep you posted uh, with more news on that front uh, as we go but um uh but uh uh, but we do so you know we we will be as we will be opening it for registration we will be doing papers again so uh those of you who might be interested to present papers which i strongly encourage you to submit proposals um we had such uh such a great pool of papers last year um so we very much uh, look forward to that we will be uh, sending out our official call for papers soon also um so that's another thing and we actually this year will have a hospitality suite which means we could actually be be doing the very cool scrabble 
Exactly. Tournament. Yes, we, we, we will have a separate. Yeah. We, we will have some uh, some different configurations of space at the at yeah. the conference. So we we Equally we will have a hospitality a novel toffle uh, tournament. Exactly. <laughs> we could do that thing. Uh, that is something that could be done by us uh, at MythMood. Absolutely. Um, uh, <laughs> we could play the we could play the full Norse version. Uh, you know where the good guys all die at the end. Um, uh, yes. are, are surrounded and you you go down with Odin. Um, anyway, so yeah, it, 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 we will do that. We we, we we can do all of these things and more uh, at Mythmoot this year. So um, be watching in the next few weeks. Probably by our next episode, we will be able to. Uh, I, my, that's my goal. Um, uh, we might be able to open registration by then. Certainly, we'll be able to explain things like ticket prices and everything a little bit more clearly next time. Um, but. We are making very concrete progress towards uh, towards having things all set for Mythmoot here, um, so we're very much we're very much looking forward to that. Um, um, okay, okay. Um, other announcements that I'm forgetting, Trish. Um, did you want to talk about the Mythgard Academy? We started. Oh yes, yes, we did start. Courses. We did started the new Mythgard Academy class. Um, we did our first class on Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card on Tuesday. That was a lot of fun. Um, we're the class is going to be uh, the, the course is going to be six sessions long, um, and we did session number one. I've basically scheduled the to talk about the book in the first four sessions and then with a fifth session for q a and then this a sixth session to discuss the film adaptation of ender's game um uh for those of you who know me what that really means is i will probably take five sessions talking about the book because the odds i'm going to get through the entire book at the end of the fourth session i think are relatively small especially since that last section is really long so anyway but uh but it but it should be fun. We talked about the first six chapters on this past Tuesday, uh, and that was really neat. I've been I've been noticing so much that I never saw before. Um, I always really enjoyed this book, but I've been uh, I've, I've been admiring it a great deal more, even um, as I've been uh, looking at it really closely uh, and working through it. So um, that's been uh, that's been really great. So if uh, if you are interested in that, please do join us there. We should be having soon um, uh, elections for our next book. We need to start putting that into place. Um, because, uh, we have, we have, um, uh, you know, th- this, uh, class will be ended in the middle of, uh, May. So we'll be, it'll be time soon to start thinking about th- what will follow Ender's Game as well. And of course, Tolkien will be back, uh, uh, on the ballot potentially for next time. So, uh, so we'll see. Um. Uh, good and, and summer courses, right? Yeah, and, yeah, the summer courses. And as I mentioned last time, we talked about them some last time, so I won't uh, discuss them a whole lot right now. But just to remind you, uh, r- registration is open for Mythgard summer courses. Uh, the uh, the in depth study of the Harry Potter series with Amy Sturgis, uh, the 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 first ever Harry Potter professor on the planet. Um, she's doing her awesome Harry Potter class again this summer. I am teaching the Canterbury Tales, so if ever you have come to, um, if, if ever you've wanted to really understand why Chaucer is awesome, uh, and you have been afflicted by, you know, uh, a, 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 a weak and lame exposure to Chaucer in a high school English class or something like that, uh, I encourage you to come and discover how much fun Chaucer really is um, uh, with me this summer. 
And then our third class is a really neat class. It's the one I was alluding to earlier on, Robin Reed's uh, class on The Lord of the Rings from a uh, cultural studies and audience response point of view. So if you have ever wanted to really know more about what kind of impact did The Lord of the Rings have, and not only in America and England, but around the world, how, um, what kind of impact did the Lord of the Rings have on Russian culture? What kind of impact did the Lord of the Rings have on Italian culture um, in the mid to late 20th century? Um, uh, questions like that, as well as looking at things. How was Tolkien's uh, depiction of elves, for instance, uh, really interacting with and reflecting uh, the the fairy tradition of his time? It's something that I've talked around at various points, um, but she's going to really be looking at uh, in a lot of detail. So just really fascinating stuff. If ever you've been sort of thinking, um, wanting to know more about how Tolkien really fits in in the 20th century, both his influence and his impact. Um, it should be a really great class. So that's uh, uh, Professor Robin Reed's um, course on uh, The Lord of the Rings from a cultural studies and audience reception uh, approach. So, and I think that uh, finalizes our announcements. Thanks for your patience uh, in uh, uh, sticking with us during an old school, long length Riddles in the Dark <laughs> episode for which I repent and uh, which we will we'll try to do better and next I time. I will be flogged in the beginning after the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, be back to, we'll be back to making bricks without straw next time. We will so. make corrections. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but in any case, as usual and even more enthusiastically than, 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 than customarily, thanks for listening and Godspeed.